The scripture today is from John 15, 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it imbibe, abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to see so many of you this uh, Sunday morning where just a lot of people are traveling or just maybe they're downright playing hooky. Um, but thank you for being with us. Thank you for being patient with us as we are just um, revamping and updating and upgrading our Covenant Hall over there. My name is Brandon Lutz. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City Church. And this morning we're wrapping up our sermon series on Jesus' I Am sayings. The last four weeks we've looked at Jesus saying, I am the bread of life, the good shepherd, the light, the resurrection, and the life. And this morning we just read the passage where Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now, each of these declarations of Jesus reveals something about who Jesus is, but they essentially reveal that Jesus is the great I am. God in the flesh has come down to dwell. He has stooped down to dwell among men and to seek and to save the lost. We just celebrated this a few days ago. And just to give you all the setting of Jesus' context and setting when he's saying this, Jesus shares this I am statement with his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion and death. Judas has already been sent away to betray Jesus, and so it's the 11 disciples sitting before Jesus up in the second floor. And so why, why does Jesus choose this time? Why does he choose this moment just before they go to the Garden of Gethsemane to share this I am saying? J.V. Fesco writes that Jesus wanted his disciples to know that he is the true vine and they are the branches. He wanted them to know about their vital union and connection to him because very soon he would not be physically connected to them, but he is still connected to them. The issue we run into in this passage is that many of us are spiritually not connected to Jesus. Some of us are even under the belief that we are connected to Jesus when the reality is that we are not connect, we are, excuse me, that we are connected to things that look like or smell like or they feel like Jesus, but they aren't the real thing. Our passage describes two types of branches, and there's only one difference between the two. Again, both branches look almost identical, almost exactly the same, but one di- the one difference is that one branch is producing fruit and the other one is not. So a lot of us, when we read that, We quickly want to get ourselves off the hook because our hearts are deceitful above all things. We start considering all the good things we do, all the good things we have done. If you're a Christian, you think, I go to church. I mean, I go to church on today, a day like today when a lot of people aren't going to go to church. 
I read my Bible, I tithe, I give money to charities, I volunteer at Life Choice, Heart for Winter Haven, I help my friends in time of need. I'm a faithful spouse, at least I'm more faithful than most. We'll even start com comparing ourselves uh, to others to make ourselves believe that we're better than we really are. Just so you can have a glimpse uh, just into my own heart a little bit, when I, go to, when I go to the gym, my heart wants to do two things. If I see someone at the gym who I think is not as healthy, not as fit, not as strong as me, my go-to response is, they don't know what they're doing. They're wasting their time. What are they doing here? They clearly need a lot of help. Now, if I see someone at the gym who uh, is in better shape than me, who is healthier than me, stronger than me, whatever it might be, then this is what my heart does. Man, they spend way too much time at the gym. <laughs> They're probably on some non-FDA-approved substance, <laughs> something like that. You see how easy it is? See how easy, just one way or the other, that's how easy it is. This is not evidence of fruit. This is not my heart producing fruit. Let me ask you this. How would you grade yourself when it comes to patience? How would you rate yourself when it comes to self-control? When people observe you, how joyful would they say you are? We just celebrated Christmas and Jesus' birth. God coming to be with us and rescue us. And most of the time during this Christmas season, joy was not on my face. Joy was not on display in me. So what does that mean? What does that say about my heart? What does that say to how I'm connected to the true vine, Jesus Christ? My hope this morning is that we will see that being vitally connected to the true vine, Jesus, is ultimately what we need. The word abide is repeated at least ten times in our passage. To abide is to live, to continue, to remain in. So to abide in Christ is to live in him and remain in him. What this means is to live in his unending, continual grace and love for you. His grace and his love for you has to be what gives you life. It has to be what drives you. It has to be what internally moves you. If it is anything else, then you have nothing. Abiding in him is not what saves you, but it is one of the signs that you have already been saved, that you have already been rescued by God. You need a vital connection with Jesus Christ, a personal relationship with him like a branch does that of a vine. That is the only way that we can produce fruit. It's a heavy passage uh, with some heavy things for us to wrestle with this morning. We're going to look at this metaphor as we did the previous four weeks, as you can see in your outline, in those four different ways. So let's first start with the fruitful design. In the beginning, before sin came into the world, we were vitally connected to God. Adam and Eve create, were created by God and did life and dwelt with him in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were joyful because God joyfully delighted with them and he was in their presence all the time. That is how God designed it for life to go from the beginning. But it gets even better than that for us. In Genesis 1-2, through God was absolutely engaged into the goal of our greatness and our glory. He wanted to make us a people into greatness and glory that covered the entire earth. Here's what I mean by that. God implanted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Now, most theologians and archaeologists, they believe this was somewhere in the Middle East region, as the Bible mentions the Euphrates and the Tigris River, rivers. So the Garden of Eden was this small area somewhere around there at the time when God gave it and put them there. 
God's goal for them was to fill the earth and subdue it. Without spending a ton of time flushing this out, God designed it from the very beginning for his people, for Adam and Eve first, to abide in him, to live in his love for them in such a way that the fruitful produce of their abiding and remaining in him was the spread of the Garden of Eden covering the entire earth. So sit on that for a moment with me. From the beginning, God gave us dominion over the earth and then said, subdue it and multiply. We were designed to be fruitful and multiply. We were designed to be God's ambassadors on this earth. We were designed for greatness and glory. And the only way we could lose our greatness and glory is if we disconnected and cut ourselves off from our source of greatness and glory, from the very thing that gave and gives us life. And as many of us know, we gave up the greatness and glory of God. We gave up the love of our Father for the lie of all lies. Adam and Eve and us, we believe that the lie that God doesn't love us, that God doesn't want what's best for us, that God isn't for us. And so we cut ourselves off from the source of our fruitful design. And since that time so long ago, mankind has been grasping and reaching and trying to acquire something that we can't. Something that we can never attain, which brings us to the second point. Throughout the Old Testament, there's a lot of imagery that, that God uses to describe his people, God's first son, God's wife, a, nations of, a nation of priests, uh, a flock, just to name a few. But one that is used a little less often and therefore isn't as well known is that God's people are called a vine. There's only a few instances where this takes place, but I want to mention them. And as I read these few examples, just consider how is God using this metaphor? Is this a positive metaphor or is this a negative metaphor? What is God saying about his people? From Psalm 80, starting in verses 8 through 9. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it and took deep root and filled the land. Then jumping to verse 14, turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven to see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. From this passage, we can see that God is the vine dresser, God is the caretaker of the vine in the imagery used to describe God's people. He rescued his people out of Egypt, and he has planted them to flourish and to thrive. He has given them exactly what they needed to do this. Later, the prophet Isaiah tells God's people a short story that uh, we read in Isaiah 5. It describes that God had a plot of land with very fertile soil. God is described as clearing out the stones, prepping the ground to make it work, to make the, the plants and the vine be able to grow. And in verse 2 and 4, God is portrayed as sitting and waiting and looking for his vine to yield grapes. But all it produced were wild grapes. He has done everything to give his vine every opportunity to thrive and produce fruit, yet it only produces wild grapes. Now, I'm not a farmer, uh, but I guess that wild grapes is a bad thing. But I, Fesco says that wild grapes are usually inedible, and when they are edible, they're very small and they're very sour. Most people don't like the taste. Most people are not going to eat these. So not only are they not enjoyable as food, but they're definitely not able to be enjoyed to make wine. You cannot make wine with sour grapes, with wild grapes. In this story, Isaiah is sharing with God's people, God decides that he is done tending and growing this vine. I'm done with it. He is going to let it get devoured, trampled down. It will become a wasteland of thorns and briars. 
No rain is going to fall upon it. If there was any wonder as to who the vine was in the story, Isaiah says in verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, the people of God, and the men of Judah. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed is what he found amongst his people. He looked for righteousness, but behold, there was none on his vine. Ezekiel 15 is titled, Jerusalem, a useless vine. Rather than read this, I think we get the picture with a title looking back at Isaiah's story. Useless vines are only good for one thing, fuel for the fire. So how did God's people become so useless? What happened to Israel where they were unable to produce fruit? The same thing that happened and happens to us when we go to anything besides God to give us life, and the same thing happens to us when we are disconnected from our Father. What do you run to for security? What do you go to for approval and worth? What drives you to do the things that you do? Where do you run for rest? We are so quick to run away from the reality of how truly broken we are. You may be aware of some of the ways you're sinful and try to do life apart from God, but to think that you are fully aware of how broken you are, of all the different ways your heart clings to find life apart from God, is to live in a reality that just isn't true. That is the very nature of sin. It's sneaky. It's deceitful. The moment you find sin in your heart and the moment you go after it and the moment you try to kick it out your front door, three more are sneaking in the back door. We so often get it backwards. So many of us believe that if we are growing in our faith, if we are trusting uh, less in ourselves and more in Christ and what he has done, then we're going to be less sinful. We're going to be not as broken as we were before. Here's the problem with this belief. If this is true, then as we grow in our faith, then that means that we need Jesus less and less. But if, we're, if I am growing in my faith, trusting Jesus more and myself less, means a greater awareness of how sinful, of how truly broken I am, and also a greater awareness of how truly holy and glorious and perfect God is, then that means I need Jesus Christ more and more. Do you see the difference? One belief, whether we're aware or not, makes much of myself, much of ourselves, whereas the other belief makes much of Jesus. So that's one of the ways our hearts can deceive us. Are you ready for another one? It's the last one. So when we come to grips that we are not as we should be, that there is something about us that is off and needs to be changed, we so quickly look to the ways that the world offers for us to fix ourselves. The world says you can change if you learn a new technique on how to live. The world says you can be better if you can just reach a new or a higher level of morality and goodness. The world says if you can just find and tap into your true inner being somewhere deep, deep inside you, then you can redeem yourself. Then you can figure this life out. If you find these things, if you do these things, then you can grow, then you can thrive and produce, produce fruit. So let me give you just a small example of this. Let's say we have a young man. He goes to the gym regularly. I'm gonna, I think this is the second out of three little gym illustrations. So if you don't like the gym, I apologize. You have a young man who goes to the gym regularly. He just to stay in shape, to be healthy. But while going to the gym, he starts to notice all the yoga pants, all the spandex, just women who aren't living, leaving anything to a mystery. He then struggles with lust at the gym or later in his heart. 
Now, some of the techniques or morality changes would be go to a different gym, close your eyes, look away, work out at home, something like that. And while those, in essence, aren't bad things, what's the issue? They don't address the reality of this young man's lustful heart. It's like putting a Band-Aid on a patient who has been diagnosed with cancer and the doctor telling him he's going to be just fine. You know, we just celebrated Christmas, and for the first time this year, uh, we had a fake tree in my house. I grew up with real trees. Rachel and I have always had real trees, uh, but we just got, they just seem to get more expensive, expensive every year for us. Um, so we got a fake tree uh, the day after Christmas last year, and we put it up this year. But for those of you with real trees, or if you ever had a real tree, if you do what I did, you go to Home Depot, you go to Lowe's, you get your tree, uh, you get it home, you get it set up in the living room, you throw on the lights, you get your ornaments, your decorations up, and your tree just looks amazing. I mean, you can just smell it in the house. One of the things we would do first is we turn off all the other lights in the house so just the Christmas tree was lit. It's just so fun just to look at and marvel at. But at the end of the Christmas season, maybe now when January rolls around, how does that tree start to look? Five or six weeks after you got it, that tree that once looked amazing is now looking very much dead. And that's because it is. You see, a couple months before this, the tree was cut off at the base of its stump, severed from the roots that made it alive and growing. And ever since then, it has been dying. We can make it look as great as we want for Christmas, but nothing will bring our Christmas tree back to life. Externally, a lot of people are decorated and look like great Christians. Externally, a lot of people look like great people, great citizens. Externally, a lot of people are connected to Jesus. If you are a Christian here this morning, we have to be aware of how easy it is to run into the mechanical nature of being a Christian. Going to church, reading your Bible, getting rid of those really big surface sins that are easy for all to see. I mean, if you had a friend or a family member, a coworker, a neighbor, whoever, become a Christian, these are probably the things we're going to tell them to do. This is going to sound strange. Just go there with me for a moment. Why is this wrong? What are we forgetting? We are running to the things of doing Christianity, the external actions and behaviors of a Christian, rather than the relationship with Jesus, rather than being vitally connected to him first. We are earning and attempting to win the love of God rather than drawing on and being vitally connected to the love of God. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, you may be tempted to think that being a Christian is a list of do's and don'ts. Please hear this. If you're a non-Christian, you want to put your faith in Jesus, then more than likely your life on the outside is going to change. But most importantly, what is going to happen is you're going to gain a life-giving, a life-sustaining, a life-transforming, life-satisfying relationship with the true vine, Jesus Christ. Which brings us to our third point. And as we move on to point three, look back at verse one and notice how Jesus calls himself the true vine. In John 15, Jesus has to distinguish himself from Israel, who is called the vine in the Old Testament. Israel, us, God's people, was God's vine that yielded wild grapes, bloodshed, injustice, sin, idolatry. Jesus, however, is the true vine, the one who will yield the fruit of love, of righteousness, and faithfulness. We've been reading 1 Samuel together in community Bible reading, so we've seen the story where God gave Israel the king they wanted, but not the king they needed. 
Soon in our reading, David is going to become king, and he'll be a shadow, a glimpse of the king that we need and the king that was coming. Isaiah prophesied that the shoot from the stump of Jesse would be a man who would faithfully obey God's law. And in Paul's letter to the Romans, he states, right in the beginning, Jesus was the descendant from David. Jesus was the long-awaited king that needed true vine that God's people needed but didn't want. So Jesus came to earth, born through the Virgin Mary, through the power of the Holy Spirit, a descendant of David from the stump of Jesse. And as he lived his life, rather than doing what, what we do, he stayed connected to. He remained in his father's love. Teenagers, think about this for a moment. When Jesus was 12 years old, he couldn't not be in his father's house. That's where he had to be. As he did life in this broken world, the only thing that gave him life was being vitally connected to his father. And that is what made the cross so unbearable for Jesus. Jesus had abided in his father for 33 years on this earth. Before he came to earth, there was no moment where they were not perfectly connected. Yet on the cross, Jesus was watered with the cup of God's wrath as he paid the penalty for sin. Jesus was cut off from the father. Jesus was cut off so that you could be cut back and produce fruit. And as we read in our assurance of pardon, greater, no greater love has none than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Three days later, after Jesus was cut off, the true vine sprouted from the earth. Jesus has become what we could not become. Jesus has done what we will never be able to do. But in his mercy and in his grace, he chooses to connect himself to us. He chooses to give us life when we were dead, to give us the ability to produce fruit. Verses 4 through 5, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is telling us that the only way that we can have life, the only way that we can produce anything of significance is if we live in him, if we remain in him, if we stay connected to him, because he is the only way that we can be connected to our Father. In the last few minutes, now let's just look at what it will be like when Jesus comes again. In the Garden of Eden, God makes it known to us that there are two trees, the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis, the tree of knowledge of the knowledge of good and evil takes center stage, as it's the tree that Adam and Eve moved towards. But if you jump all the way to the last chapter in the Bible, in Revelation 22, it says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There is no evil, there is only life in the end. The Garden of Eden will cover the entire earth. God will restore and complete the new heavens and the new earth. There will be no more thorns, no more bristles, no more unfertile soil. The stump of Jesse, the true vine, will be the tree of life. And it's, it's hard for our minds 
and hearts to really grasp and understand what it's going to be like on that day and forevermore. But if you are vitally connected to Jesus, then this greatness, this glory is what is in store for you. And we get to start seeing and tasting its fruit and the healing power of its leaves even now if you abide in Jesus. In Galatians 5.22, we read that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the things that are going to be growing in your heart if you're abiding in him. It will not happen overnight, just like fruit doesn't happen and produce overnight on a tree. But if you are in Christ, then these things will be growing in you. Verse 10 tells us that our hearts are going to desire to obey God. Our heart's desire is going to be less consumed about what we want and more consumed about what God wants. Let me go back to that story of the young man in the gym. What would it look like if, if what I said before was not fruitful? What would it look like for the young man to be fruitful in this moment, in this instance? Instead of following the way of the world and viewing the woman, the women at the gym, no matter how they are dressed as objects for his pleasure, what if there was something far greater and far more? What if he told himself the truth that the satisfaction and longings of his heart are real, but the true satisfaction and longings of worth and approval are already found and secured in Jesus Christ? What if he told himself the truth that this was a woman, this woman was a daughter of God, created by the very one, the very God who made himself? What if he viewed her as someone else's, whether that's her husband, future husband, and God's? Now imagine. He takes just a few minutes and he prays for this woman. That she would know that she is designed for greatness and glory and that she would come to know this only through the greatness and glory of God. That is the fruit of the Spirit on full display. You don't see it, but it's growing inside of him. Can you imagine how our world would change if men did this? Can you imagine how our city would change if the men in our church became this? Here's the reality. If we are vitally connected to the life-giving, life-sustaining, life-satisfying true vine of Jesus, then we can become just this even now. I want to end by looking at verse 11, how Jesus concludes this I am true vine metaphor. I made the mistake uh, when I was telling Joe, end at verse 8. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to look at verse 11, I'll read it here. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. That my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. We too often uh, make happiness and joy the same thing, but they're not the same thing. Happiness is about external circumstances, situations, and because of that, it's very fragile. It's fleeting. We've all experienced this. You're happy when you go when you're in line to get your favorite Starbucks drink, your favorite winter Starbucks drink, then all of a sudden you get in your car after you paid and grabbed it, you take that sip, and it's not the drink you ordered. You're driving to a Christmas gathering, listening to your favorite Christmas song, and someone cuts you off, and, you, and then they decide to go 20 miles below the speed limit. That one was for Jonathan, but he's not here. You post something to your wall, and you get a couple instant likes and hearts, only to wake up the next morning, and there's nothing else new there. Happiness is all about our external circumstances. Joy is very different. Joy is built on the spiritual realities and truth that I belong to Jesus and he belongs to me. That Jesus has done what I never could and has chosen to give me his righteousness. 
that Jesus willingly and joyfully paid the penalty of my sin, that as I become more and more aware of how broken I am, I get to taste a new flavor of his grace and mercy. These spiritual realities can never be changed or taken away from you. This joy is what Paul possessed when he was in chains in prison writing letters. His external circumstances could not change his eternal spiritual realities and truths. This joy is what Martin Luther King Jr. encouraged and preached to black Americans to abide in while they were being unjustly treated. This joy is what allows an individual who's about to be murdered for his faith unless he renounces Jesus to look his murderer in the eye and profess his faith in Jesus. Do you want this kind of joy? Do you want this sense of security and approval and worth? Do you want this this peace and this rest? Abide in him. Abide in his love. Abide in his grace and mercy. This is how we can be fruitful and multiply his joy. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy for our hearts in the busyness of Christmas to have our hearts distracted by what we are truly celebrating and what, what this day, what this season, what this holiday is all about. Jesus, the great I am, has come to be God with us and to seek and save the lost. Even this past month, I can see how, how easy it is for my heart to attach my joy and heart to things that cannot sustain or fill my joy. It's easy for me to run to the things that a Christian does rather than what it means to be a Christian. So, Father, we thank you for Jesus that he was the true vine. We chose to cut ourselves off from you, but you would not let us remain in that state. Jesus came, only found life and joy in you, and then cut himself off from you so that our joy may be full. Because of what you have done for us, what you have made us to be, work in us in in such a mighty way, as a church family, as your, as your branches, that we produce the fruit and the healing of the tree of life. Open our eyes to know how truly broken we are so we can increase our gratitude and we can increase our joy over your heart for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're in Christ, if you're connected to uh, the true vine, then one day we will feast in the house of Zion. But as we wait, as we're on this world or in this earth, let us be... Um, Let's be the leaves. Let's be the fruit of the healing to the nations. We don't have to do that on our own. We don't do that on our own strength. We do that because of God's strength and his power because we are connected to our true source of life. And so as we go, we go with his blessing over us. So please receive the Lord's blessing over us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.